If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at that same passage, Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. The uh, same uh, verses we looked at last Sunday as we uh, continue to make our way through uh, Luke's book of Acts. As I said last Sunday, in this chapter, uh, we really have three different sections. There's, there's the, the opening section of the chapter, verses 1 through 13, when we have the event of Pentecost, when we, we see the Spirit poured out on the church. Jesus, according to His promise, clothes with power His disciples for the work that they have been called to do, to, to the work of, of living as His disciples and of being his witnesses even to the ends of the earth. Then in the, the middle part of the chapter, though the largest part of the chapter, verses 14 through about 40, we have Peter's explanation of, of this grand event. Peter turns to the crowd that has gathered and he, he begins to explain to them that the, the same Jesus that they crucified has been made Lord and Christ. And as the exalted Lord, seated at the right hand of the Father, he has now poured out the Spirit upon the church, even as Joel had prom <clears throat> promised he would so many years before. And so we have Peter explaining to the crowds that this grand work of Pentecost is the work of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then, at the end of the chapter, we begin to see the effects of not only the, the event, but of, of Peter's explanation itself. And really, Luke highlights two effects, two fruit of this outpouring of the Spirit. The, the first is conversion. Those who, who hear the message, those who, who hear Peter's bold proclamation of the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, they are cut to the heart. They, they realize their sin. And they repent and believe the gospel. And Luke tells us that some 3,000 were added to their number that day. And so the first effect that we see is that people come to Christ and they are enfolded into His covenant community. They are, they are baptized into His name. But it is that community that is the second effect. Because those who come to Christ are, are knit together. They, they become the fellowship of God's people. And that community is the community that Luke is describing for us in the final paragraph of this chapter in verses 42 through 47. We began looking at his description last Sunday. He actually gives us a, a fourfold description. The, the first thing that we see is that those who, who are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, they, are, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They, they devote themselves to learning and to understanding the things that these apostles are, are teaching concerning who Jesus is and what it is He has, has done. They are eager learners. But they don't want to just know it intellectually. They want to be doers of the Word. They devote themselves to, to living it out, to, to putting into practice, to, to becoming men and women who live as disciples of Jesus Christ ought to live. And so they are marked first by this devotion to the apostles' teaching. But they are also devoted to one another. We, we saw this in the phrase, they are devoted to not just fellowship, but to the fellowship. It's not just that they are fellowshipping together. It's not just that they are getting together. They are, of course. 
They are, they are getting together constantly. They are, they are sharing meals. They are sharing their lives. But they are doing that because they are devoted to one another. And it is this devotion to the fellowship, this devotion to, to the family of believers that is the second mark of their devotion to Jesus Christ. But now this morning we come to look at the, uh, the next two uh, marks of this new community. Because not only are they devoted to the apostles' teaching, and not only are they devoted to one another, but they are devoted, we're told, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And I want us to consider each of these marks this morning. First, this, this new community is devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, again, as we, we said with the fellowship, it's not just breaking bread. It's not just sharing a meal that they are devoted to. They are doing that, of course. But again, Luke uses the article. He says that they are devoted to the breaking of bread. This is not just any shared meal. This is the shared meal. And most commentators recognize that, that this is a reference to the Lord's Supper. This is a reference to communion. This is the meal that, that Jesus told them to do in remembrance of Him. And so let us ask ourselves, let's remind ourselves what this meal is all about. What are we doing when we come to the Lord's table? What are we doing when we eat the Lord's Supper? What are we doing when we celebrate communion? Well, as I said, it is first a remembrance of Jesus' death. It is a, a remembrance of the fact that, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When we, when we come to the Lord's table, we eat the bread and we, we drink the cup because the bread reminds us of, of Jesus' body broken for sinners and, and the, blood, or the, the juice reminds us of His blood poured out as the sacrifice for our sins. It is a remembrance of Jesus' death. It is a remembrance that, that in His death alone do we have the, the source and the foundation of our salvation. You see, there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ because there is no other sacrifice that can deal with our sins. There is no other sacrifice that can cover our guilt and that can turn away God's wrath. There is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved because there is no other sacrifice that can deal with sin and death and the wrath of God. And so, the first thing that we do when we come to the table is we remember, we remember that God did not spare His own Son, but put Him forth as the sacrifice for our sins. That we who were justly condemned, that we who were dead in our trespasses might be made alive together with Him. That the record of death that stood against us might be nailed to His cross as we die with Him. And as we are set free from the guilt of our sin. But coming to the Lord's table is not merely looking back. It is not merely remembering. Yes, at the Lord's table we remember the Lord's death. But at the, at the table we also remember the, the salvation that is ours in Him. We, we remember the inheritance that is now ours. We remember and we look forward to the feast that we will one day celebrate in His presence. You see, the table not only looks back, it also looks 
forward. It looks forward to to the eternal life that we will have with him in the kingdom, to the, the life where we will feast with him at his table as guests of the king. And so we look back when we come to the table, but we also look forward to the table. We look forward to what this salvation has secured for us. This, this new fellowship that we have with the King as citizens in His kingdom. And that is why Jesus says that when we come to the table, we not only remember, but we proclaim salvation in His name. We, we are proclaiming the good news of the Gospel. We are proclaiming that the sacrifice necessary for our salvation has been offered. And that the future hope of of fellowship, restored communion with God, has been secured. And so we proclaim the good news of the gospel even as we enjoy the new fellowship that we have with Him and with one another, because that's what a shared meal does. It, it, it establishes and, and celebrates relationship. It celebrates the new relationship that we have with Him. We are hosted by the King. We sit at His table, and as His guests, we have a new relationship with one another as we share this table fellowship. This is what the Lord's Supper is. It is the meal that Jesus gave to His church that they might remember His death, that they might look forward to uh, the, the future glory of fellowship with Him for all eternity, that they might proclaim that to the world, and that they might enjoy its fruit even now in this life as they share a meal with, with the King and with His guests. It is a meal that looks back to the foundations of our faith and allows us to enjoy the fruit of that salvation. So when were they doing this? When were they celebrating this grand meal together? When were they coming to to the breaking of bread, to this, not just a shared meal, but to this shared meal with the King? The shared meal that that is is rooted in His work of redemption. Luke tells us that they were doing this day by day in their home. Day by day, they, would, they were coming together. Day by day, they would, they would receive their food with gladness. And we don't know for certain that this means that they were doing it every day, but, but certainly they were, they were doing it regularly. They were doing it frequently. It seems that, that this was part of their regular routine, not just to, to come together, but to come together for this particular meal. To come together to to remember and to to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. As we see in a moment, they they were still going to the temple to pray. But they were celebrating this meal in their homes because this meal was no longer part of the the worship of the Old Testament sacrifices. You see, they would still go to the temple and pray, but they were no longer participating in the sacrifices because the sacrifices of the Old Testament were no longer necessary. Remember what we learned in the book of Hebrews. Those sacrifices were a shadow that pointed forward to what was necessary, to what was to come, but they were not themselves the substance of our salvation. They always and only ever looked forward. And now the full fulfillment of what that Old Testament sacrificial system proclaimed as necessary, has now come in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament sacrifices foretold. 
He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so as the believers came to Christ, they no longer participated in the shadow because they now had the substance. And so while they would go to the temple to pray, they were worshiping in their homes because there was no other place for them to gather. There were no church buildings at this point. And so they were gathering in their homes to to eat this meal together as an act of of worship. And that's what we need to understand, that this was the, the heartbeat of their worship, of their, their corporate gathering, as they gathered together daily to, to worship God and to remember the gift of His Son as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so when we look at this pattern, when we, when we look at, at how they were gathering together day by day in homes to, to eat this meal together as an expression of their worship, I think we can, we can draw two lessons from their pattern, from the pattern that they set before us. And the first is simply this, that they intuitively understood and they lived out the reality that worship, True worship, the worship to which they were called as the people of God, that it is a worship that is centered and focused upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. When we come to worship, we come to worship in the name of Jesus Christ. We come to worship in and through Him. It is only in Christ that we have access to come into the presence of the Father. It is only by His sacrifice of Himself that that we can ascend the hill of the Lord. And so worship centers on the work of Jesus Christ. Now for them, that meant celebrating this meal, celebrating at the Lord's table day by day. Obviously, if you've been at Trinity very long, you, you know that we do not celebrate the Lord's Supper as a part of every uh, corporate worship service. We don't gather every day. We, we gather once a week. And when we do gather, we don't celebrate the Lord's Supper every time. We, we celebrate the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of the month. And there's a long history and a long tradition for, for why those patterns are established. The, the patterns of the church have, have, been, have changed over time. They have, they have deviated. There was a time when the church did gather every day for worship. And there was a time when, when the celebration of the Lord's Supper was a part of that gathering every time. And, and for a variety of reasons, and uh, you can explore the history on your own, you can ask me to, for, to lunch and we'll, we can talk about it, but for a variety of reasons, that has changed. And we debate still today whether or not those changes were for the better, whether those changes served the good of the church. You, you need to know that your session, the, the elders whom you have elected as, as the shepherds of this particular congregation, we have, we have had this discussion on numerous occasions of, of whether or not we ought to be celebrating the Lord's Supper every time we gather. And, and we continue to, to ponder that question. Obviously, to this point, we have, we have not made that decision We continue to celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month. But even on those Sundays when we do not celebrate the Lord's Supper, even on those Sundays when we do not physically come to the table, our worship is Christ-focused. Our worship centers upon His person and His 
work. Everything we do revolves around who He is and who He is for us as the Christ. Because He is the center and the heartbeat of all true worship. And that's what we need to understand. We, we will, as elders, we will continue to, to debate how often we should come to the table. and we will, we will continue to try to make decisions that are in the best interest of the church. Those, those, those uh, decisions that will, will be focused about how we receive the, the grace of God. But whether we are physically coming to the table week by week or not, we will always and we will continue to make the work of Jesus Christ, the center of our worship. It's, it's why we follow the pattern that we do when we, we gather. It's why we come into the presence of God, invoking His name, naming Him as the Maker of heaven and earth, and why we come uh, confessing uh, the truths that He has revealed concerning Himself, but also confessing the truths concerning ourselves that we are sinners who have no right to be here and who come only in the name of the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's why our worship has the pattern that it does. Because our worship is focused on Him, on Jesus Christ. But not only do we see that, that worship is to be centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, we also see that worship is to be daily. That worship is to, to be day by day. Again, there was a time when the church gathered together every day, especially here at the beginning. They, they did that out of necessity. The, the, they needed to gather together because they needed to hear the apostles teach. They, they needed to hear those who had been with Jesus to, to declare these truths to this new church. They, they needed them to, to lead them into worship. And for a long time, when uh, the, the Bible was not readily available to, to all, the church continued to gather regularly and continued to, to hear uh, those who had been called to preach and to teach, to, to expound it to the congregation day by day. And our tradition, and as, as our cultures have, have spread out and have made gathering daily more, more difficult, we have still maintained that emphasis upon daily worship but have reminded people that they are to gather as families for worship or that they are to worship personally themselves through their own prayer and through their own uh, reading of God's Word. But it is necessary that we as God's people continue to follow the pattern of worshiping daily. We may not gather as the whole church every day, but we must worship every day. Because as Sam was saying to the children, worship is the fuel of the Christian life. That worship which is focused on Christ is where we receive the grace of God to live the lives that we have been called to live. It is not the only means of grace, but it is a vital means of grace. Because when we gather for worship focused upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, it is in worship that we receive first the assurance of God's love. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5 that God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is in the gift of Jesus Christ that we come to have an assurance of God's love for us. 
And it is that assurance of His love that sets us free from the bondage of self-seeking. I heard a pastor this week say in another context that that self-seeking is really the fruit of insecurity. We seek our own interests because we do not believe that we have a Heavenly Father who is for us. Because we do not believe that we have a Heavenly Father who is working all things together for our good. Imagine the freedom that comes from knowing that the Maker of heaven and earth is for you. You do not have to be anxious about what you will eat, about what you will drink. The the Gentiles run after these things. The Gentiles seek these things because they do not have a heavenly Father who watches over them. But we are the children of the living God. We are free to give our lives away in the service of others because we know that our good is not at risk. And it is in worship that we are reminded of the assurance of His love for us. It is in worship that we are reminded that He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him. And this is why I so often say that it's when you least feel like worshiping that you most need to go to worship. We don't go just to express what is already in our hearts. We go to shape what is controlling our hearts. We go to remember that we have a heavenly Father. But it's not just the assurance of God's love for us that we experience in worship. In worship, we also see the beauty of His love for us. And when we see the beauty of Christ's self-sacrifice, it sets us free to love others. It, It motivates us to love others. The past few weeks, I've been re-watching the, the Hobbit movies with my children. And so we watched the first one, then we watched the second one, and just last night we, we watched the, the third Hobbit movie, The Battle of the Five Armies. And in that movie, you get to see the ugliness of self-seeking, the right-hand man of the master of Lake Town. As he, even in the midst of the desolation of smog, even as their town is on fire because of this great dragon, he can think of no one but himself. You see the others rallying to to help one another, to to come to the aid of those who who are most at risk, and yet you see this puny little man again and again and again think of nothing but himself. And the ugliness is repulsive. Because we are created in the image of God, something about the self-sacrifice of the others resonates with our hearts. We want to emulate it. We want to be like that. And nowhere do we see that mind more perfectly on display than in the gift of Jesus Christ. Yes, it is is dangerous to say that, that Jesus' death is only about moral influence, that it's only about giving us an example to emulate. Jesus' death is so much more than an example. His sacrifice of Himself is the objective foundation by which we are saved. His blood covers our sins. But let us not err in thinking that His death is less than a moral example. It is a picture of beauty. It is a picture of the life that we have been called to live in. When we see the beauty of Jesus, we desire to emulate it. We desire to be like Him. 
And so when we come to worship and we center on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we see beauty on full display. And it resonates with our hearts. And it compels us, Paul says. The love of God compels us to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. And so we gain an assurance of His love. We, we gain a glimpse of His beauty. But even more than these, in worship, we experience God's love in a real and tangible way. We, we refer to, to worship and particularly to the Lord's table as a means of grace. You see, it's not just remembering. It's, it's not just seeing. When we come to worship, when we praise Him, and when we feast at the table with Him, God is at work. You see, the, the, the sacraments of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper are not first and foremost about what we are doing. They, they are not about us declaring our faith. They are first and foremost about what God is doing for His people. Here, He feeds us. Here, we are spiritually nourished. Here, we actually receive grace. Those who come to this table in faith are strengthened. They are strengthened for the life that they have been called to live. So you begin to understand why why they were coming to this table. Why we must come to this table regularly. And why we must feast at this table in faith. Because it is in worship centered upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ that we are assured of His love. That we see His beauty. And that we receive His grace. And such worship must be daily because we are weak and forgetful creatures who need to come again and again. We live in a world that is constantly diverting us, that is constantly distracting us, that is, that is constantly causing us to, to question the truths that we have believed and, and professed. And so we need to regularly come into worship to be grounded in the truth, to be fueled for the lives that we have been called to live. Obviously, I don't have time to get into prayer this morning. We'll talk about that next Sunday. But we need, we need to see this. We need to see that they were devoted to worship, and particularly they were devoted to, to coming to the Lord's table. Because it is in worship, as they feasted at the table, as they, as they focused upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, that they received the grace to live the lives that they had been called to live. And we need that same grace. And therefore, we need that same devotion to worship. This is the third test. Are we devoted to the apostles' teaching? Are we devoted to one another? Are we devoted to daily worship? Because it is in daily worship that we express our devotion to Jesus Christ. And because He has invited us into His presence, and because He has promised to meet us there, 
That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, that you would make us to be people of worship, people who come regularly into your presence, whether that be at home, whether that be with our families, whether that, that be here together as a church. Father, may we be people of worship who come into your presence regularly to meditate upon, to focus upon, to, to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that we might be set free and empowered to live lives worthy of the calling that we have received in his name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.